Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the 40th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in our world of financial markets and financial planning. So this week, we have an extra podcast for everyone where Matt and I are going to focus specifically on the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Stimulus Act of 2020, which is also known as the CARES Act. This was passed last week by the Senate and the House and signed by President Trump. And the CARES Act is a $2 trillion stimulus package that includes things like direct checks to Americans, support for small businesses and damaged industries, tax credits, payroll tax relief, and financial support for the healthcare system. So there's a lot to kind of unpack in this bill, but Matt and I wanted to make sure everyone understands how this is going to impact them. So we got most of this information from an article written by Jeff Levine, who's the director for education at Kitsis.com. And he does a really phenomenal job of reading and interpreting uh, government bills that get pa- gets passed. So um, let's just go ahead and dig into this, Matt. This is going to be great, Mark. It's going to be very informational. So let's do this. Yeah. Um, so the first one, which is the most popular item, I'm assuming for people that want to understand how this is going to impact them is the direct checks to Americans. Um, so there's kind of three different, uh, buckets of how this is going to get paid out. So, um, married couples filing joint are eligible, uh, for up to $2,400 in stimulus checks. Um, up to $1,200 per person for all other filers. So if you're married filing joint, you could get the maximum amount of $2,400. If you're a head of household or if you're a single filer, the maximum you can get is $1,200. And then the third bucket is up to $500 per child under the age of 17. However, Matt, there's a catch to this. Uh It's not everyone that gets this, right? So this is based on your adjusted gross income uh, for 2019 if you already filed. But if you haven't filed yet, it's based on your adjusted gross income for 2018. Got it. Okay. And so for a lot of listeners, uh, that is the top of the second page of your 1040. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, So there's AGI thresholds when it comes to this. So if you're married filing joint and your AGI is under $150,000, you're entitled to the full $2,400 stimulus check. Okay. Okay. If you're head of household, if your AGI is under $112,500, you're entitled to the full $1,200 stimulus check. And then all other filers, so people who file as single, uh, their AGI has to be under $75,000 for them to receive their full stimulus check. Okay. Okay. So incomes above and beyond these thresholds for each group will see a reduction of $5 in the recovery check for every $100 in income exceeding the thresholds I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Okay. So does that make sense? It does. 
So an example is a couple who is married filing a joint return. Uh, let's say they have three children under the age of 17 and they have $176,000 of AGI. So they are eligible to receive a maximum recovery rate of 2400 plus 500 plus 500 plus 500, which equals 3900 But while 3900 is the maximum potential recovery rebate, the couple to which uh, they'd be entitled to, they have income in excess of their 150000 adjusted gross income, which is their threshold amount. So specifically they are $26,000 over their threshold amount. So their recovery rebate must be reduced by 26,000 times 5%, which equals 1,300. Got it. So their final rebate recovery check the couple will receive would be the 3,900 minus 1,300, which is $2,600. Got it. Okay, so does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So again, these calculations will be based off your 2019 income if you had already filed or 2018 income if you have yet to file your 2019 taxes. And this is something that I don't necessarily like about this bill map because this is going to cause some problems for people who either got laid off or furloughed. And people could have made a whole bunch of money in 2018 and 2019, but that doesn't capture the people who aren't working anymore, who recently just got furloughed or laid off. And I think this is the one or ma- one of the major flaws in the bill. And I think Congress needs to work eventually on another relief bill to provide aid to these people now. And I don't mean to bash our congressional leaders in this, but and I don't even know if there's a better way to do it, but it's not going to capture those people who made a lot of money in 2018 or 19, but aren't going to get much in terms of a stimulus check because of that income if they've been laid off. That's an excellent point, Mark. I mean, I hear right now they're working on a bill that's focusing on the recovery aspect. I do know those talks have started this week. Yeah. But is it going to capture this group of individuals? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So that's a tough part of this. And again, I don't know how you solve that problem, but there's going to be some issues for people there. Um, And then also adding to the issues, what about the people who haven't filed their 2019 uh, tax returns, but have had kids in 2019? Hmm. So that doesn't capture the kids under the age of 17. So they're not going to be entitled to that extra $500 stimulus check per child. Yeah, they had a child, they adopted a child. That stuff's not going to get captured because they didn't file the tax return yet. Right, exactly. And all this stuff will eventually get hammered out when people file their 2020 taxes. But when 2020 rolls around, that's going to be too late, right? When you file your 2020 taxes. So eventually people are going to get this money, but it doesn't solve the problem that people need this money now Now. and not later. Yeah. Okay. Um, So moving on, another huge flaw I saw in this bill, Matt, was in addition, there's been marriages and there's been divorces in 2019. So there's going to be a lot of people who are both going to be over and underpaid If they haven't filed their 2019 return yet, right? Yep. Um, So that's another thing to consider. So there there definitely are going to be some issues with this. Um, So I guess we'll see, you know, how this gets resolved or if Congress gets together to address these problems. Moving on, uh, payment dates is next. So there hasn't been an exact date set in stone for these payments. However, based on early indications from the Treasury Department, it may not be until May Uh, until people receive these checks, which is also a huge problem for people that need the money now. Okay. 
And the final area that I kind of want to tackle with this, Matt, is where people are receiving their checks. And again, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but this is another flaw in the bill that I see, in my opinion, is that people, there's kind of, they break it down into three groups. Number one, people who are receiving Social Security currently should be receiving their checks from this bill in the same bank account that they receive their Social Security payments. All right. So that group's covered. That group's covered. There shouldn't be many issues there. Okay. Okay. And then it looks like payments will be made to bank accounts, which taxpayers 2018 or 2019 refunds were paid into. Hmm. However, Hmm. again, this is going to cause issues because what happens if the taxpayer is no longer using that bank account or didn't get a refund in the first place? Okay, so this is going to add to the issues. Um, Apparently, the IRS is going to provide a phone number for people who can call um, who experience these issues. But again, this doesn't solve the problem of getting the money in their pockets right now. And then the third way to do it is other payments may be sent to the last known address on file. But again... People haven't filed for 2019. They moved in between 18 and 19. Their mail address might not be forwarded anymore. Exactly. Yeah, their address isn't going to be correct. So, again, um, I think the direct checks to the Americans is the the piece of this that there's a lot of unknowns on how this is going to play out. I think, obviously, a lot of people are going to get checks and it's going to help them out, but it's not going to capture as many people as I think Congress had hoped um, to help out during this time. So moving on, the second part of this that I wanted to address is coronavirus distributions. So um, this kind of covers distributions from IRAs or employer-sponsored retirement plans of this year. Okay. Yes. So people are able to take distributions of up to $100,000 from IRAs or employer-sponsored retirement plans in 2020 if the individual has been impacted by the coronavirus. These distributions are exempt from the 10% penalty for those under 59 and a half. So as a refresher for readers, if you are under 59 and a half and you take a distribution from your 401k or your IRA, in addition to paying ordinary income taxes, you would normally get charged with a 10% penalty. Okay. So you have to be older than 59 and a half to be exempt from that 10% penalty on distributions. However, during this time for 2020, uh, the IRS and the government is waiving that 10% penalty for those under 59 and a half. They're also uh, waiving the mandatory withholding requirements, which is usually 20% from 401k distributions. And they're eligible to be repaid over three years in a lump sum or multiple amounts. I like that aspect of it. Yeah. And and I think this is really good. And then in addition to that, the distributions that they take from the IRA or 401k can be spread over three years in terms of income tax. I also like that. So if unless you elect otherwise, it's going to default. Let's take example. Someone takes a $30,000 distribution in 2020. It'll automatically add $10,000 to their income in 2020, 10,000 to 2021, and 10,000 to 2022. So you can spread that tax liability over the three years. Over three years. So you don't take the tax hit all in one year, which is good. 
However, there are requirements for uh, people to take advantage of these coronavirus distributions. And the IRS defines it as those have been those who have been impacted uh, by the coronavirus. And they define those who have been impacted as this. Those who have been diagnosed with COVID-19. Okay. Those who have a spouse or a dependent who has been diagnosed with COVID-19. Okay. Those who experience adverse financial consequences as a result of being quarantined, furloughed, being laid off, or having work hours reduced because of the disease. That's going to capture a lot of people. A lot of people, right. Um, and those who are unable to work because they lack childcare as a result of the disease. And that's a big problem right that's now. That's a big problem. Those who own a business that has closed or operate under reduced hours because of the disease, which is also huge. Yep. And those who meet some other reason that the IRS decides to say is okay. So I think this is one of the highlights of this bill, Matt, that the IRS designation of who has been impacted by the coronavirus, I think, is pretty liberal. Yes, absolutely. So I think that uh, this is going to be uh, something that is one of the positives um, f- that come out of this bill. So again, not that we encourage people to take distributions early from their retirement accounts, but in a lot of cases, Matt, people don't have a lot of options. Yeah. And I think in times like these, we need to be able to have access to funds for people who need to meet their bills on a weekly basis. And I'm okay with that in times like this. So moving on, the third topic that this bill kind of covers here is loan enhancement from employer-sponsored retirement plans. And again, this applies to people who meet the requirement of those who have been impacted by COVID-19, which we just discussed above. So the maximum loan amount from a employer-sponsored retirement plan is increased to $100,000. So in general, the maximum amount that may be borrowed from an employer plan is $50,000, but the CARES Act doubles this amount for affected individuals. Second part of this is 100% of the vested balance may be used. But in general, uh, once an individual has a vested plan balance that exceeds 20000 they are only eligible to take a loan of up to 50% of that amount, up to the normal maximum of $50,000. But the CARES Act amends this rule for affected individuals, allowing them to take a loan equal to their vested plan balance, dollar for dollar, up to the $100,000 maximum amount. That's a big deal. Yeah. And could you just go over for people, Matt, really quick, if they don't understand what vested and non-vested is? Absolutely. So anytime a participant puts their own money in the plan, that is vested money, meaning obviously it's theirs. Where vesting comes into play, listeners, it has to do with employer matches or employer profit sharing contributions. Those could be under vesting schedules, meaning it takes time for all of that money the company's contributing to become yours, okay? Um, On some of these vesting schedules, they could be up to five years. So a simplistic example, Mark, for listeners is 20% of it in year one instantly is yours. 12 months later, another 20% or a total of 40% of it is now yours, Year 360, year 480, year 5, 100%. Now, in some plans that have something called a safe harbor provision, the matching contributions vest instantly. 
And so if you have a safe harbor contribution, and for most employers, that's a 3% match, that money is instantly 100% vested, meaning it is yours. Now, all of these 401k plans, they track these individual what we call source buckets. One source bucket mark is the participants contributions, right? And then the other bucket could be a profit sharing or matching. And so the 401k custodian, they track these different source buckets, okay, along with the third party administrator. Okay. okay? Yep. So again, they're only going to let you tackle and borrow against what's actually yours because the part that's not vested, if you leave that employer, that money stays within the plan and then gets redistributed. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Yep. Um, and we have another guest in the room again today. Louie is in the room chewing on his bone, so don't mind him if you hear him chomping around in the background. He's living his best life as usual. <laughs> and the last part of this loan enhancement program in this bill, Matt, is delay of payments. So any payments that would otherwise, otherwise be owed on the plan loan from the date of enactment through the end of 2020 may be delayed for up to one year. So if you have current um, debt out or if you took you know, a loan out against your 401k that those payments are delayed as well. Okay. The fourth major piece of this, uh, which is also huge, I think, is required minimum distributions for 2020 are affected. So all RMDs, required minimum distributions for 2020 are waived, meaning you do not have to take a required minimum distribution for this year, if you were scheduled to do so before this bill was passed, this includes individuals who also have beneficiary IRAs. And just to refresh listeners, do you want to just discuss again what an RMD is? Absolutely. So uh, RMD stands for required minimum distributions. Um, right now, that age is 72. So once someone uh, reaches the age of 72, they have to start taking a small percentage out of their uh, pre-tax saved retirement accounts, whether they want to or not. There is an IRS mortality calculator that your uh, IRA custodian utilizes, and it tells them what the minimum percentage that that individual has to take. Rough math mark is around three, three and a half percent of the account value beginning at the age of 72. Okay. Now for people that inherited beneficiary IRAs before the end of 2019, most of those people are taking equal payments for the rest of their life and they're under a similar calculation as well. It's just that it's spread out their entire lifetime. And if it's someone in their fifties, that's going to be a lot lower percentage based upon that mortality calculator. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and there's good news, though, uh, for people who have already taken their RMDs for 2020, they can put back their RMD into their retirement accounts if they are within a 60 day window of taking the RMD, which is also known as a 60 day rollover. That's great. Um, they can write a check for the amount of the RMD and put it back into their retirement account. So if you're within, you know, 60 days of taking your RMD, you can write a check and put that full amount back and not take the RMD for the year. Hence, hence not taking the tax liability. Right, exactly. Um, a couple other things rel relating to required minimum distributions is 
for retirement account owners who took their RMD very early in the year and for whom the 60-day rollover window has already expired, there is another potential approach. If it can be shown that the individual has been impacted by COVID-19 enough to qualify under the liberal guidelines outlined earlier for uh, the coronavirus-related distribution, then the rollover can still be completed, i.e., the RMD could still be put back any time for the next three years from which uh, date the distribution was received. So if you can meet the liberal guidelines of the IRS and you're already past that 60-day window of taking your RMD, there's a good chance that you're still going to be able to put that back. Okay. The only group of people who have taken an RMD already that their hands are essentially tied are those that have taken an RMD from a beneficiary IRA, and they cannot put that money back into the inherited account. Okay. Okay. Um, any other comments before moving moving on to uh, student loan relief? No, my uh, my theory is on the beneficiary IRA, the beneficiary IRA. The reason it's like that is, you know, you got custodians, and I don't even think there'd be a way to even code that. Mm-hmm. So I'm bringing that to real life, like for our office. You know, our custodian is uh, National Financial Services, which is the independent side of Fidelity. And it's a very popular uh, custodian for um, RIAs like ourselves. I don't even think, Mark, there'd be a way to even code that. Do that, yeah. yeah I don't even think there'd be a way. And I think that's why th- that's how it reads in this bill. I think so. So, and then again, just as a reminder, do you want to go over kind of briefly 30 second to a minute of what a Benny IRA is or an inherited IRA? Yes. So when someone passes away, you can leave um, the IRA to a spouse and just gets dumped into their IRA. However, if money goes to the next generation, that money gets split up and it has to go into something called a beneficiary IRA. The reason it has to be a separate account, Mark, um, is it has to track the distributions over their lifetime. It's calculated based upon the uh, previous owner's date of birth and then the beneficiary's date of birth. That goes into an IRS mortality calculator, and that's how it has to get tracked. Now, even if it's an after-tax Roth IRA, it still has to have uh, a minimum required distribution. However, it's just not taxed, even for the beneficiary. Right. Okay. All right. So moving on to student loan relief. So uh, this is another um, big part of this bill that I think is uh, relatively positive for most most people. So uh, federal student loan payments can be deferred until September 30th of 2020. So this suspends required payments on federal student loans through September of 2020. During this time, no interest will accrue on this debt. That's a big deal. That's huge. Voluntary payments are not prohibited. So you can still pay them down. So you can still pay them down at virtually 0% interest. Okay. And by default, payments will continue unless individuals take proactive measures to contact their loan provider and pause payments. That's the big statement. So you have to take action if you want to stop your payments. It doesn't automatically just happen. Okay. So this period of time will continue to count towards any loan forgiveness programs as well. 
And as such, any student borrower who intends to qualify for a program that will ultimately forgive the entirety of the federal student debt, such as a public service loan forgiveness program, should immediately pause payments. Because whereas other borrowers who continue to pay federal student loans during this time may simply be paying down what is effectively 0% debt, like I mentioned before, those borrowers who will ultimately have their outstanding student debt forgiven would be paying down a debt that would be otherwise wiped away clean. So save your money. So save your money. So if you are a part of this program, for example, you work for a non for profit and you qualify to have your debt forgiven after 10 years of working for a nonprofit, for example, you know, it's probably a good idea to go in and suspend your payments at this time. Okay. Um, Finally, all involuntary debt collections are also suspended through September 30th of 2020. This not only includes wage garnishment or the reduction of other federal benefits, but the reduction of any tax refund for student loan purposes. As such, borrowers of student debt who are delinquent on payments and would normally be subject to a reduction of their tax refund have an incentive to file their tax returns early enough so that the refund is processed before the relief expires. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another benefit of this is employers can exclude student loan repayments from compensation. So this uh, provides employers a very limited window of time in which they can take advantage of a special rule to aid employees paying down their student debt. And in general, Matt, amounts paid by an employer to an employee, which are used to pay student debt or pay down student that are considered compensation to the employee and are subject to income tax. Got it. Okay. So that's another uh, huge benefit that if employers can do so, they can aid their employees in, in helping paying down student debt at this time. And I would say that, you know, if you are still employed and, you know, you're not as affected as a lot of people are by this and you can still pay down your debt, I would encourage people to do that because you're in you know, essentially paying down debt at 0%. Yeah, you're attacking the principal 100% with those payments. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would encourage people to, to keep doing that if they can afford to do so in this in this type of environment. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to interject real quick, Mark, I know a lot of um, car loan uh, providers, things like Ally Financial, as an example, you know, they're allowing the deferment of up to multiple months. I think it's three months of payments they'll just add it to like the back end of your loan. Right. And, you know, my comment there is it's still accruing interest. So I would highly recommend that if you are financially able just to continue to meet those debt obligations, I would just tell you to continue that. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Just, just a word of advice there. Yeah. A um, couple more topics uh, under student loan relief, Pell grants and subsidized federal student loan relief for students leaving school. Uh, Both Pell Grants and subsidized federal student loans are subject to various limits. Section 3506 of the CARES Act excludes from a student's period of enrollment any semester that a student does not complete due to a qualifying emergency. Section 3507 does the same with respect to a federal Pell Grant duration limit. And if a student withdraws from school during the middle of a semester or equivalent because of a qualifying emergency... Section 3508B eliminates the amount of a student's Pell Grant that would normally have to be returned. 
um, while 3508C cancels any direct loan that was taken to pay for the semester. So if you were given a grant to go to school and you had to withdraw due to COVID-19, you know, those things are in place for you. I think that's excellent. Yeah. Okay, so moving right along, uh, there's a lot to unpack here, so we're just moving right through it. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is uh, provisions related to healthcare and qualified medical expenses. So if you have a health savings account or flex spending account, which many people do, the def definition of qualified medical expenses is expanded to include over-the-counter medications and menstrual care products during this time. Um, some other provisions related to health care are three that I want to talk about really quick. Medicare beneficiaries will be eligible to receive the COVID-19 vaccine when available at no cost. Okay, that's excellent for Medicare good. beneficiaries. Okay. Yeah. Um, during the COVID-19 emergency period, Medicare Part D recipients will be given the ability to have, upon request, up to a 90-day supply of medication prescribed and filled. Now, see, that's a biggie, you know, because um, obviously individuals on Medicare are at the most risk age group from the COVID virus. Yeah. So if you can limit them walking into a pharmacy, I think this is excellent. Yeah, I think it is, too. I wonder if that, you know, if, you know, supplies of this stuff are, are big enough to, to, meet, to meet that, that demand, because yeah. like we've seen that there's a lot of stuff on back order for people that are um, using certain drugs to, to treat COVID-19 that, you know, people can't get right now because it's on back order. Yeah. Um, so that's one of my concerns with it. But if people can do this, this is great because again, like you said, it's usually the older population that has these prescriptions that need to get filled. So if you can give them a three month filled prescription, then that's huge for them keeping them at home. I think that's great. Also, during the COVID-19 um, emergency period, telehealth services may be temporarily covered through plan years beginning in 2020 by an HSA-eligible high-deductible health plan before a participant has met their deductible. Okay, so that's good, too. Another yep. way to keep, keep people them out of the Yeah, keep those individuals out of the, uh, the waiting rooms, right? Yep. So kind of transitioning to more business-oriented um, subjects that are covered in this act, Matt. Um, first, kind of want to just go over unemployment benefits that have been significantly expanded. Um, so one of these is pandemic unemployment assistance. So self-employed individuals who are generally ineligible for unemployment compensation benefits and other individuals who are ineligible for regular unemployment Extended unemployment or pandemic unemployment insurance or run out of such insurance will be eligible for up to 39 weeks of benefits via this provision. Okay. So uh, self employed individuals, in a nutshell, That's a will big be deal. available for unemployment. That's yeah. a big, big deal. That's huge. Um, second part of this, Uncle Sam will cover unemployment for the first week of unemployment. So I don't know if many people uh, knew this or not, but in general, individuals who are ineligible to receive unemployment benefits for the first week um, that they are unemployed, the CARES Act offers to pay states to provide unemployment compensation benefits immediately without the normal one-week waiting period. So traditionally, you have to wait one week after you file for unemployment before your benefits start to pay out. Got it. Yeah, it's okay. true. But that has been waived. 
Um, regular unemployment compensation has been bumped by $600 per week. So the CARES Act provides states with the ability to increase their unemployment benefits by up to $600 per week with federally funded dollars for up to four months. So this has the ability to dramatically increase the amount of money an individual is entitled to temporarily uh, to receive via unemployment compensation benefits. And this is huge, Matt, because the average weekly unemployment benefit nationwide is under $400. This is another big deal. So many individuals will see their unemployment checks increase by 150% or more thanks to this part of the CARES Act. I think it's great because those people really need it right now. Yeah. No, I think this is this is a really, really strong part of this bill that um, a lot of people need, obviously, with the huge unemployment number that we saw last week as we fully expect that number to continue to grow for Absolutely. the time being. Yes. Uh, the last part of this is unemployment compensation is extended by 13 weeks or another full quarter, Matt. So okay. in the event that people are nearing and ultimately reach the maximum amount of weeks of unemployment compensation provided under state law, the CARES Act will allow them to receive such benefits for an additional quarter, which okay. is another good thing. Yep. Okay. So moving on to how this impacts small business owners. So another significant benefit included in the CARES Act for small business owners is the Paycheck Protection Program, which is a partially forgivable loan program offered through the SBA or the Small Business Administration. Such loans must be applied for by June 30th of 2020 and can have a maximum maturity of 10 years. They may be provided via existing approved SBA lenders as well as lenders who are otherwise certified by the SBA to offer such loans. Furthermore, such loans will be guaranteed 100% by the SBA. No risk to these banks. No risk to these banks. So essentially, the federal government is going to be giving these banks um, money. So if you're a small business owner, you can continue uh, more likely than not just to use the same bank who you have over the past few years to get these loans. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they'd already have all your, you know, checking account statements, all that type of stuff, which right. would maybe help streamline the application and, process. Yeah, reduces time it takes to get approved for the loan. Um, so businesses, including sole proprietors that have fewer than 500 employees are eligible for this relief. Eligible borrowers are also required to make good faith certification that the loan is necessary due to the uncertainty of current economic conditions caused by COVID-19. Under the Paycheck Protection Program, lenders will generally be able to issue SBA 7A small business loans up to a maximum of the lesser of $10 million or 2.5 times the average monthly payroll costs over the previous year, and the proceeds of such loans may be used to pay for a variety of costs, costs uh, including the following uh, seven costs. Number one, payroll costs. Two, group health insurance premiums and other health care costs. Three, salaries and or commissions. Four, rent. Five, mortgage interest, excluding amounts prepaid six utilities, and seven other business interests incurred prior to February 15th of 2020. 
And I think the single largest benefit of a loan issued under the Paycheck Protection Program is the possibility of having all or a portion of the loan forgiven. This is a biggie. It's this huge. is a biggie. The amount eligible to be forgiven is the amount spent during the first eight weeks after the loan is made on the following payroll costs, excluding prorate amount prorated amounts for individuals with compensation greater than $100,000, rent pursuant to a lease in force before February 15th of 2020, electric, gas, water, transportation, telephone, or internet access expenses for services which began before February 15th of 2020, and group health insurance premiums and other health care costs. So this is huge for people. I mean, these are essentially grants that, you know, people can just take as long as they meet these guidelines to try to keep their doors open and keep their people paid. So I think this is, again, one of the very strong aspects of this bill. And um, sorry, I'm just looking at my notes here. In order for the amounts to be forgiven, the business main must maintain the same number of employees from February 15th, 2020 through June 30th, 2020, as it did during either the same period in 2019 or from, or excuse me, or from January 1st, 2020 until February 15th of 2020. To the extent that this requirement is not met, the amount eligible for forgiveness will be reduced radically. So in essence, if you keep the same number of heads, It'll be forgiven. Yes. Yep. So, and that's the thing that it's encouraging people to keep, you know, all these people employed, um, you know, so it's going to be up to businesses to see if they want to take this on because, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, probably think that filing for unemployment, they're going to make more money by doing that. So, you know, business owners have to have these conversations with their employees that, you know, we're going to keep you on payroll. We're going to keep paying you. It might be tough for the next four weeks or the next eight weeks, but you still have a job. Absolutely. So hopefully that encourages people to stay on. Um, and in the first place, people have to get let go to file for unemployment anyway, right? When you're employed, you can't file for unemployment. And, and <clears throat> Congress has never taken a strategy like this in 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 previous um, you know, economic shocks, mm -hmm. i.e. 9-11, i.e. Uh, the great financial crisis of 08. You know, so I am um, I'm interested to see how this plays out. Um, I'm encouraged, Mark, um, that this could really work and really help small business owners and help their employees. Yeah, absolutely. So the key there, I know that was uh, a lot in that that little paragraph. But the key thing there, like Matt said, is that you have to keep the same number of employees that through you June 30th. Right. Yes. Sir. Yeah. That yes, you sir. had on February 15th. Yeah. Uh, so another big benefit of this is the maximum interest rate that can be charged for a loan made under this program is 4%. So small businesses uh, tend to be more risky borrowers. So the ability to borrow up to $10 million at no more than 4% and over to a term of 10 years is pretty significant uh, for most small businesses and small business owners. I think it's excellent. Um, and then finally, under this payment protection program, 
payments for loans made under the Paycheck Protection Program will be deferred for a period of no less than six months and no longer than one year. Additional guidance will be provided to lenders within 30 days of enactment to further elaborate on the six to 12 month deferment period. So in essence, you keep the same number of heads. You can prove that by the end of June. You don't have to worry about paying it back. It becomes a grant. Yes. Which has no tax consequences. Correct. Correct. So um, separate from the payment protection program, Matt, there's also something in here called the new employee retention credit for employers subject to closure due to COVID-2019. So as an incentive to encourage businesses who have been hit hard by the economic effects of COVID-19 crisis for making further layoffs, the CARES Act introduces a new payroll tax credit provided that they are not receiving a covered loan under Section 7A36 of the Small Business Act. So in plain English, you can't double dip and use the uh, Paycheck Protection Program and the new employee retention credit as a small business. All right. Okay. So uh, qualifying for the employee retention credit is as follows. The trigger for a company to begin to be eligible for the credit is that operations of the company have been fully or partially suspended during a quarter, either as the result of a governmental authority or in which 2020 has less than 50% of the revenue from the same quarter in 2019. And for those businesses that do meet this requirement, the business will continue to qualify for the credit until the earlier of the end of 2020, or there is either a quarter without a government-required suspension of operations or gross revenue from the current quarter exceeds 80% gross revenue from the same calendar quarter in 2019, whichever is sooner. Um, and then finally, I think it's worth noting that this metric is based on revenue and not profit. Okay. So the I key, think the key figure there is 50%. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 50% has to be down that much for it to trigger this. Right. Exactly. Okay. Right. Exactly. So I think a lot more small businesses will find the pay the paycheck protection program loan program a lot more useful than the new employee retention credit. But um, there's another option there as well. Now, I know a biggie here, too, is it covers nonprofits. Yes. Yes, it does. Yep. Yep. So the last thing that I kind of wanted to cover before we wrap up or discuss anything else, Matt, is the payroll tax deferral. And the CARES Act provides employers with another payroll tax-related break. Excuse me. With the exception of employers who have debt forgiven by the CARES Act for certain loans provided by the Small Business Administration, employers are eligible to defer payroll taxes from the date of enactment through the end of the year until uh, the end of 2021 or 2022. So more specifically, 50% of the payroll taxes that would otherwise be due during this period may be deferred until December 31st of 2021. The remaining 50% is due on December 31st of 2022. <clears throat> so in again, essence, you can kick the can on it. Exactly. And again, you can't double dip. So if you're using the Paycheck Protection Program where you're getting a loan from the Small Business Administration, you can't do this. You're getting that loan up front. You're going to continue to you know, pay, pay your expenses essentially. Okay. Um, 
So payroll taxes and self-employment taxes fund programs such as Medicare and Social Security, as I'm sure most people know, um, which are significantly underfunded already. So if anyone is concerned about this, um, the government and the IRS, to, or excuse me, the government, uh, to mitigate further impact to these programs, the CARES Act authorizes Congress to appropriate amounts from elsewhere in an amount equal to the deferred amounts that would have otherwise gone into the trust funds. So it allows Congress to take funds from other places to make sure that, um, you know, Medicare and Social Security are not adversely affected. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, again, I think more people or more small business owners are going to take advantage of the loans rather than the new employee retention credit or the payroll tax deferral. But um, there are several options based on everyone's given situation. So, after going through all that, what are your thoughts? What are your comments? Mostly good, mostly bad. How can it be improved? You know, coming out initially out of the gate, I'm going to go kind of in order, if that's acceptable, of what you went through them on. First thing I'll throw out there is the the checks to Americans. I think there needs to be some sort of portal that you go into that you complete and indicate, you know, this is my bank account or this is my address. And I think the best way to do it is everyone has to sign up and have a, a username for the IRS website, I think is the cleanest way to do it. And there are um, anything's going to be subject, Mark, to um, bad players trying to mimic someone else. Right. Right. But I think if everyone had a username uh, and an account at the IRS website, that would be the easiest way to do it. So, for example, you know, I use that website to make my payments electronically. So I have a username and password for that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the first thing that comes to mind. But I know not everyone has a computer and I understand those things as well. That's the first thing that comes to mind because that's going to be a major, major issue. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, let me go through this. The student loan relief, I think, is is excellent. Um, you know, I, I think what they did there makes a ton of sense. But like you said, they have to take action. Right. They have. Yeah, they have to take action. And I think almost. And again, with the and going back to what you were just talking about with the direct checks, I think it almost would make more sense for people to take action on the direct checks because someone like me, you know, I I would rather, you know, my stimulus check go to someone who's who has been, you know, laid off or furloughed or something like that. So there should be an option for people to not get their checks and, you know, defer that to people who actually need it. Again, I don't know how that works, yeah. but it just seems like that that would make more sense, you know, to help people out. I but don't again, disagree. Just because you said you have to act on the student loan thing, that made me think of that. No. The other thing that kind of comes out at me on the SBA loan for the uh, uh, Paycheck Protection Program, the concern I have is all these banks are going to be backed up. Mm-hmm. So the concern that I have is it makes sense. There's no reason not to do this, right? If you're a small business owner with less than 500 employees, but you know, the banks have no risk, but they're going to have to properly document the loan. I'm sure there's going to be a list of 10 things they're going to need. And, you know, every small business is going to be going to their, their bank to apply for this. And I just, I I question how quick they're going to be able to turn it around. Now I have heard uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin talk about this specific point, and he's 
he was saying that, you know, these banks are um, um, have the ability to turn it around very, very quickly. And um, I just wonder what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else. Those are the biggies for me out of this. But I think the direct payments, I think, will help people, you know, meet their their needs short term. I'm going to be curious to see what they're going to be throwing into this next bill that's focused on the recovery. And the concern is, from my perspective, the more time that Congress has to debate a bill, the more pork that's going to be in it. Right. And I have a feeling that this recovery bill is probably going to be debated for many weeks because the I think the perception is this bill covers things for the next month or two. And I think the recovery bill is going to be something that is a concern for me as a citizen, mm -hmm. because I definitely wanted to focus on the recovery and really attack those industries that are impacted the most, right? Travel, leisure, entertainment, the energy sector. And I just, I, I hope it does that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think, and I don't think, you know, I think that there's going to be more stimulus that needs to be added to this. I don't think the these checks that are expected to be out in May is going to cut it for a lot of people. Mm -mm. Um, the other thing I want to throw out there is what about um, people who pay rent and their landlords? Right. This is not covered in this. Mm -hmm. So an example is what if a state says that a renter doesn't have to make their rent payment in April tomorrow? Who is going to subsidize or take care of the landlord if it's just, you know, Joe the plumber and not an ABC corporation, you know, and, you know, Joe the plumber still has to make that that note payment. Right. Who wouldn't be eligible for an SBA loan. Exactly. That's not covered under this. No. So I have I have a legitimate concern for real estate. Um, and cause, cause rent's different than like a mortgage, right? Absolutely. So you can add, you know, you can just tack, you know, payments onto the end of the mortgage to make up for that. Right. You can, like we were talking about a couple of days loan. ago, right. And the car loan, but it's different for rent and for people that, you know, don't necessarily have their houses in a, in a LLC or a corporation. That's right, Mark. I mean, you, you can't necessarily tack the, the person's rent to the end, you know, when probably statistically their cash flow is pretty tight. And if they ever leave that property and go to somewhere else, they're going to need that deposit back. They need to deposit for the next place. Um, that is the biggest loophole that I was reading about and um, researching last night is, you know, what happens to these landlords? And I want listeners to understand that, you know, I know a lot of people that own rental properties where their finances are tight themselves, you know, where they've scrounged to save up to buy that second property as an investment. And now all of a sudden, if they don't have that rent check coming in, that might be an issue. Right. And if we start to see defaults on these notes because of it, that could affect real estate prices. Yeah. So I'm not trying to be um, a Debbie Downer or a, a doomsday uh, predictor. It's just an area that I think needs to be addressed. addressed, and hopefully it will in this recovery. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. Because there's consequences um, beyond... You know, when you say, hey, you don't have to pay the rent at all, um, there's some people that really need that relief, the renters, legitimately. But there needs to be some sort of relief for the land, the landlords, the landlords because, again, listeners, not all these landlords are 
are extremely wealthy are ABC corporations. And you just got to be aware of that. Yeah. And, you know, an example, you know, that comes to mind since we're right down the street from UD is, you know, all these kids that signed leases uh, for these landlord houses around campus. What do you do? You know, I, know. I have I have a friend that's a landlord and we were texting the other day and he asked me what my opinion was on it because some of the um, students were acting or asking for refunds because obviously they're not there. And I get both sides of it, right? Because you entered into a contract that you said you were going to pay your rent regardless. Through X date. Through X date. I also get the side from the students that they're not there and they're not utilizing the property, even though they could be if they wanted to. Um, so I think that people are just going to be in a tough position, you know, Um I don't know. I don't know what the solution is for that. It's a tough one. It is. It's a tough one. It is. Well, do you want to add anything else that was kind of on your mind? No, uh, I think we're going to do a market-related podcast uh, uh, for listeners later this week. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mark and I will kind of uh, provide our usual uh, podcast format um, in a couple of days, most likely Thursday. But I think this is a good summary um, of the CARES Act that breaks it down, not only for individuals, but uh, small business owners. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone has any questions um, relating to this bill, because I know a lot of that language could be uh, confusing for some people, um, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, email is mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, or you can reach out to me um, on Twitter at Mark McEvely. Uh, M-A-R-K-M-C-E-V-I-L-Y. If you have questions and Matt and I will try, I'll try to do our best to get answers for you and answer it on the show. So um, thanks everyone for, for tuning in. I hope this answered some of your questions surrounding this bill and uh, we will see you all here in a couple days. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.